0: Today in The Garage, we asked the guests of Season 2 to answer the following question. How do you defend those people? Whether you're driving your Mercedes-Benz AMG, riffing on your Gibson, or drafting a charter motion, step into The Garage, listen to the experts, and get a tune-up. Michelle, how do you answer the question... How do you defend those people?
1: You know, I'm so unbelievably tired of that question. I'm tired of the how do you represent someone you know is guilty even more. Um, but what I say, and I and I, I get this quite often from young law students, uh, because that's just a question that they always ask. And what I say is, listen, it doesn't matter to me to be quite candid whether or not they're guilty. The onus is on the crown to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. And it's really that simple. And so I don't look at it, um, I mean, it really is quite irrelevant whether or not our clients are innocent or guilty. It really just comes down to whether or not the Crown can prove it. And that's the misconception that most people have. They don't understand that the burden is on the state to prove that the defendant is guilty, they always, for whatever reason, misplace it and think that the onus is on the defendant to establish their innocence. And that's not how the criminal justice system works. And so I tell people I don't have any qualms. In fact, I had a case, you know, fairly recently where I was dealing with a Uh, a wonderful crown where my client was literally dead to rights. It was a knife point robbery. He was a youth. He had deprived, uh, there were two youths, actually. There were two youths who were co-accused who deprived uh, a young man of his moose knuckles jacket and his cell phone. They both held a knife to his throat outside of Warden Station and the police apprehended both of them shortly thereafter with the property on their person. But it occurred to me, um, first of all, it was a really nice jacket in Scarborough then it occurred to me the police had seized uh, oh sorry the the allegation was that my clients had deprived this student of their passport and I noticed it was a passport from Saudi Arabia so it occurred to me we're in the middle of a pandemic what are the chances that this poor student (laughs) stayed in the country so I asked the crown to make inquiries of the officer in charge to determine whether or not uh, the student was still here and, and and he wasn't he had gone back home uh, to his home country and had no interest in returning. And ultimately the Crown withdrew the charge for no reasonable prospect of conviction. And my client did something like informal EJS, if you will. But I didn't have any qualms there because the reality is the Crown couldn't produce uh, the witness at a trial. And I used that example uh, for law students to illustrate that the Crown didn't have any qualms either. About withdrawing the charge. Because, yes, it was very unfortunate, obviously, what happened to that poor student outside of the Warden subway station. We all know that. And certainly none of us would want to find ourselves in that position. And I can tell you, if that were my son, (laughs) I would be incensed. But that's not how I look at it, right? That's not my job. That's not my role. That's not my function. I'm not an advocate for that poor student. I'm an advocate for my client who is a young person who, for whatever reason, felt compelled that particular day to commit that crime, but could the crown prove it? The crown couldn't. That's that's our job.
0: That's a, a good spin on it because you also uh, share with people that the crown did not have any issue with the result either. Um, also
1: because of the crown. The crown was Brock Jones, right? So, I mean, he recognized that, uh, you know, this this kid wasn't going to come back from Saudi to testify about what had happened to him and and... and and he took that into consider- consideration when he was evaluating the public interest and whether or not it was in the public interest to proceed. And let's let's re- let's recall. Let's be candid here. At the end of the day, if there was a trial and a conviction, my client still would have got probation. He's he's a youth, right? right?
0: Harpreet, how do you answer the question? How do you defend those people?
2: I have a speech. Michelle's heard it.
1: I haven't heard it. I'd like to hear you it. You heard it recently.
2: Did you, I? Mark may have heard it. So. Let me tell you, this is the speech I give to the junior calls.
1: I did hear it. You're right. I did hear it. That's right. That's right. I want to hear it again.
2: All right. Here's a speech. The defense lawyer is the most noble profession in the criminal justice system. And let me tell you why. So you have your judges. Well, what's a judge supposed to represent? Justice? What is that? People have been arguing about that for millennia, literal millennia. What is justice depends on who you are, what race you are, what socioeconomic status you are, where you live in history, when you live in history, what your status is in that society. I don't know what justice is, and no one who's listening to this knows what justice is. But these judges try and be that, and they try their best. Fair enough. What is a crown? Well, the crown represents the community interest. I don't know what that is either. Again, it depends on who you are. It depends on what political party one. Depends on what interests you're serving. Who is this community? Are my clients not part of this community? These are ongoing discussions that people have and there's no clear answers. But if you're a defense lawyer, what do you represent? You represent freedom, sweet, beautiful freedom. Everyone knows what freedom is. Freedom is freedom regardless of whether you're living today, now, or whether you're living in 17th century Victorian England or ancient Greece. You know what freedom is, whether you are a slave or a owner or a man or a woman or gay or straight or black or white, you know what freedom is. So then when you're a defense lawyer, that is what you represent. You are the avatar of the sweet goddess of freedom. And that's the most noble thing of all. And that is how I answer that question.
0: Um, the other question I, I want to ask that I, I, I thought, um, Angela, how do you answer the following question? How do you defend those people when you get that question asked of you?
3: My instincts are always like eye roll, like fuck off kind of thing. Like I'm just so bored of it. But one time I got this question from like a server or something at a restaurant. I don't even know why I had told her what I do. But one of my friends was there and heard me just like say like whatever. And my friend said to me, no, Angela, give her the real answer. And... I realize that if you actually start talking to people about what our role is in the criminal justice system and why, at least we think, what we do is important, some people do listen and you can change minds that way. And I've experienced that even with like other friends and my family. My mom's always saying to me like, People need to know when I'm talking about work. I do think there's a lot that the public just doesn't know. And as a profession, we can probably do better at explaining what we do and why it matters.
0: Same question, Daniel. How do you answer the question, how can you defend those people?
4: I usually ask for what they mean. Because people usually come at that from a, a specific set of experiences or a set of beliefs and I want to know why they're asking the question, so I can better answer it. Um, but you know, often I'll ask them, like, "Well, what if you, what if you were charged with something? Like, what 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 would you want to happen?" And they said, "Well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be charged with that because I didn't do it." It's like, "Well, do you think everybody that gets charged has done it?" Well, not everybody. Okay. Well, how do we figure it out? Like, um, but I don't know. My, my thinking about the criminal justice system has changed since I had kids. I got, I got, I got two young kids and you know, people will, the question people will ask like, well, you got kids, like how do you defend criminal charges against people who are alleged to doing horrible things to children? And it's changed my thinking, having kids changed my thinking in two ways. One is I know that if somebody uh, hurt my kids, uh, I would want to kill them. That's just what I would want to do. And it's important that we have a criminal justice system that uh, is sufficiently um, legitimate and punitive that it takes away most of the incentive for most people to engage in vigilante justice, because that's just such a powerful urge if anybody in your family is hurt. And the other thing that I think is, well, what happens if my kid gets charged? You think I wouldn't want my kid to have the best defense they could possibly have? And you think about the kinds of things that people get charged with, like kid, like teenagers sending each other explicit images and all of a sudden somebody has a birthday and then they're a child pornographer. Like, you know, these are the most intense penalties we have and we meet out as a society, and if you think that that should be an easy process to engage that, you've never been in trouble before.
0: It sounds like the opening scene of The Godfather. <laughs> you never wanted my friendship. You had the police to call, and now... <laughs> Let me follow up on that, Anna Maria. W- when the somebody from the general public asks you, how do you defend those people? What do you tell them?
5: I say the same way that I would defend you if you were accused of a crime with like passion and dignity, everybody has the right to be defended. I often think about the quote from one of my idols, um Brian Stevenson who is an incredible lawyer in the United States. Um, and I just don't know how he does what he does because he defends, he does almost exclusively, I think death row appeals and um, and is it, it practiced in the deep South where at a time where the racial disparity um, was so acute, and it, it still is, but at that time, it wasn't even sort of recognized broadly. And he was a black man who graduated from Harvard Law, and went down to the South and decided that he was going to do death row appeals for inmates. And the status of American law in in um, in the states in the South, and you know Mississippi and Georgia and Alabama, it's tragic. And he always says that a, a person is so much more than the worst thing they've ever done. And I always think about that, like when I talk about talk to my clients. Um, and I get to know them. You know, they may have made a mistake. Not everybody is innocent, of course, who I represent. But they may have made a mistake. But I strongly believe that even the worst people are, are or sorry, even even people who have who are accused of the worst crimes aren't just the sum of the worst thing that they have done. And um, I hope that that compassion is resonates with people in the public. Um, and I explained to them that my role isn't to deprive the public of safety and that it isn't to um, excuse behavior that is criminal and violent. It is to make sure that the impulse for retribution and inhumanity that governs, that has governed so much of how we treat people who have, who have committed wrongs in society is held in abeyance. And we really... Um, treat people based on rules that are acceptable to everybody.
0: Ryan, how do you answer that question? How do you defend these people?
6: I, I find this question interesting in a number of ways. Uh, if I can just change the subject a little bit. Nobody ever turns this question around on the crown. No crowns who I know are ever asked, How did you feel about prosecuting that bullshit sex assault where there were text messages after the fact saying I had a great time, let's do it again soon? It's never turned around uh, and it's never asked of anyone. I mean, I could turn this around on any lawyer. How do you, you know, how are you a tax lawyer and you um, find ways to shelter money that's earned by rich people? You know, and you find legal ways, obviously, to shelter it. I mean, you you could. It's 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 interesting to me that it's it's only asked of the defense lawyer. And and of course, I agree with everything Anna Maria said. Um, But what I find, uh, so I I I could give the stock answer that that everybody, you know, everybody has the right to a defense, and and that. That impulse that hang on um, unless you can prove that this person did it like it's an impulse that to me goes back to time immemorial um you know i i think um it definitely goes back to the magna carta uh, but it goes back even further there's there's a dialogue um in the bible when um when god is going to destroy sodom and gomorrah there's like a dialogue um I can't remember. I think it's Abraham, but I can't remember who it's with. And uh, he says, What if I can find 50 people who are innocent? And God says, If I can find 50 people, I'll spare the city. What about 40? If I can find 40, I'll spare the city. What about 30? What about 20? It goes down to 10. And then it never asks the question you want answered, which is, What if I find one? Right? And I always thought that was interesting in terms of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, because it's not absolute certainty that they're proving it to. There's still, you know, it's proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And I think back to that dialogue in the Bible. There's something deeply um, ingrained within all human beings that understands the, the horror of punishing the innocent. So, so... That's the role of the defense lawyer. We all have our, our role. Um, and it's actually very much the other way. It's when I haven't done my job, when I've made a mistake, that's when I, when I can't sleep well at night. Not when I defended my client well and he, he got acquitted or even he was found guilty if I did everything right. Um, I sleep very, very well. But what I would say, something more unique to my personality. and, and I don't think um, I don't think the stock answer quite does it for me, which is it is the only thing I could do. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't be a crown. I tried working on Bay Street. I failed miserably. I, I couldn't do it. I can't talk to this guy in a boardroom about like his bank documents. Like I just I can't do it. So I, and you know, for defense lawyers who become crowns, God bless them. I think that, you know, a crown is a, is a great profession and, and a lot of, you know, friends and relationships with crown attorneys, many of them I, I respect. And sometimes you feel like you're working with them, but I couldn't be a crown. This role in society of being a defense lawyer, I feel like is the only thing I could do. And if they didn't have this role, I don't know what I would do and I don't know where I would be. So if anybody ever asked me that question, the real answer, the truth, is that it's the only thing I could ever do.
0: Laura Lisho, how do you answer the question, how do you defend those people, or one of those variations?
7: Okay. I've thought about this a lot. Okay, this is, I'm going to be really serious about this one, okay? Perhaps even a little academic or biblical. Biblical in the academic sense. Um, Look, one of the oldest stories ever told, the basis for a lot of religions or Christianity, Christianity offshoots, Catholicism, is the story of a trial. It is the most famous trial in the whole entire world, and it's replicated in hundreds of languages. Witnesses swear on the story of the trial while they are in court, okay? Um, And so, you know, these are things, these are questions that I had as a little precocious four-year-old Laura. I'm sure it struck me one day, like, why didn't Jesus have a defense lawyer? Why is the defense lawyer missing from this story? And you know, the defense lawyer is markedly one of the important characters missing from that story. And then, you know, little four-year-old me was like, well, if Jesus had a defense lawyer, then maybe Catholicism or Christianity wouldn't have been invented because then he would have been acquitted because he was innocent.
8: But Jesus was a defense lawyer. He was defending the downtrodden, the prostitutes, the...
7: You know, so... How do I defend those people? You know, you've got to to think to yourself, what if I have, even if you really don't think they are, what if this person is innocent? What if this would be the greatest injustice for this person to lose their liberty? And so even though that might be the 5% of cases or 10% of cases, we always have to be cautious about that and um, protect the process, protect the fairness, protect an accused person's rights, because you could have that person in your hands relying on you, and you might not know. But on this question, I've also thought about this quite a bit. I think that what we need, so that people stop asking us that question, is I think we need a rebrand. We need a professional rebrand. Criminal defense lawyer is actually a misnomer. We don't defend crime. We don't defend criminals we don't defend bad people or immorality. What we do is we defend rights. We defend a fair process. Um, And so if we just change the language and we started calling ourselves civil rights lawyers, which is actually more appropriate to what we do, um, people would have a totally different perspective on what it is that we do. Like just changing the language of what we're called civil rights lawyers, it, it um, offers a whole new perspective. And um, I think society might understand more accurately what it is that we do on a day-to-day basis.
0: Anthony, how do you answer the question? How do you defend those people?
8: Um, so, I mean, it really depends on who's asking and it depends on my mood, and it depends on where I am. Um, Sometimes I'll just tell them to F off. Um, If I'm in a sort of funny mood, like a a stock answer that I like to use is that uh, I have a project, I have a personal project to destroy society, and I figured out that the best way to do that was to try to keep criminals on the street. So that's why I, I do the job, so I'm, you know, only one person laughed at that one, but I always laugh at it. Uh, I give the, the, the stock answer, which is, you know, that uh, I'm defending the presumption of innocent innocence. I'm not defending the crime. You know, I don't go into court and tell the jury that child pornography is actually a good thing. Like, no, that's not what I do. Um, or I... I try to explain to people how their rights are won for them on the backs of people they consider to be bad people. Like, if you are driving down the street and you're pulled over by a cop and your car is searched without any reasonable grounds to do so and you are a law-abiding citizen and you don't have a gun on you, you don't have drugs on you, you will never see the inside of a courtroom because they found nothing. So the fact that your rights were violated by this police officer will never be adjudicated. You're only going to get in front of a judge and have the limits of your rights adjudicated if you're a criminal, if you're guilty, if they found something. Uh, people People don't look at it like that. I try to explain to them that um, the police have their own agenda. That they're not your friends. That they're an institution in society. So, like I said, it depends on my mood. Because sometimes uh, I'll just say, oh, it's to defend the presumption of innocence. And then other times I'll go into a lot of detail about that. And I'll start talking about how Um, the idea is that if the guilty guy can get off because there is insufficient evidence to prove him guilty, then the theory is that when the innocent guy gets charged, not if, innocent people are charged all the time. So when the innocent guy is charged, he also will get off. That's the idea.
7: Yeah. And, and, um you know, we go through periods of history where certain things face prohibition and then become legalized. For example, alcohol, um, cannabis. So imagine all of the people that during the period of cannabis prohibition were unfairly targeted by the police, um, namely and disproportionately indigenous persons, um, persons of color, And then all of a sudden, this becomes legalized, simple possession. And now they're faced with um, a criminal record for the simple possession of cannabis that continues to haunt them for the rest of their life. Um,
8: How many many people are still in prison right now for, you know, high level marijuana trafficking in Canada? People that got like 10 years. I don't know. Do you know the number? I don't know.
7: No. But I think we can both say, Anthony Marchetti, that there are a lot of innocent people that do get um, charged, and so defense lawyers play an important and vital role in the system.
0: Well, tell us, tell us about what this. what, are you, up, what are you
8: referring to, Laura?
0: Tell us about this, Laura. Tell us about this cannabis amnesty pardons clinic pilot project.
7: Okay, um, so cannabis amnesty is uh, an organization. Um, uh, you might know some friendly faces on uh, the board, Anna Maria and Anna Jor, Stephanie DiGiuseppe, both
0: friends of the podcast, both La Garage guests,
7: um, as well as many others. You love saying
8: that, friends of the (laughs) podcast. You love saying that.
7: Well, they've both been on the podcast. Yes. Wonderful, wonderful people. Um, they, uh, were fundamental and instrumental in starting Cannabis Amnesty, which is an organization that advocates, um, on issues Uh, related to um, cannabis, the legalization of marijuana, but more importantly, the fact that prohibition adversely affected, disproportionately impacted, um, and was used as a gateway for police interaction um, with particular groups, racialized groups, indigenous peoples and persons of color. And so they were adversely affected more so than any other group by prohibition. Uh, marijuana I, prohibition.
8: I had a police officer straight up admit that to me once, that he was he was upset. Not upset. Upset's not the right word. But he was wondering what the police would do if marijuana was legal, how, how they would get grounds to harass people.
7: Well, I remember when I started practice in uh, 2009 when I was called, uh, there were a lot of cases. I used to call them the magic joint cases. And uh, those cases, in a nutshell, they're cases where the police would say in their notes that they approached my client who happened to be black because they were smoking a joint. And then that became the gateway for them to illegally search them. And then maybe they found a knife in their pocket and then arrested them for having a flick knife, failing to comply probation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so the marijuana joint used to be the gateway to other charges. Um, And I call that the magic joint cases because That was always the premise upon which the police started the interaction, but then when you looked at the evidence, they never seized the joint. The joint always went missing, the magic joint. Um, And so, you know, that's an example of um, prohibition being used in a malicious manner for racial profiling. And so this clinic, going back to Marco's question, uh, I am working on a... I'm the project manager for the Pardon Clinic pilot project that is being run by Cannabis Amnesty. And what we are doing is we are putting together a pardon clinic to assist those with simple cannabis possession records and those with even non-simple cannabis records um, to help them apply for their pardons. Bill C-93 came into effect a couple years ago, um, and it allows for a streamlined process for those with a simple marijuana possession record to apply for a record suspension. Um, there are an estimated tens, tens of thousands of people in Canada that would be eligible for um, a pardon under the stream. But as of 2020, I think the statistic is only 458 people had applied and only something like 279 people, this is as of August 2020, were successful in their application. And I might be off by a couple of numbers there, but I I think that's the stat. And the reason for this is the process is complicated. It's convoluted. People have to line up in different places. They have to ask for documents that they don't know about. Um, And the parole board requires original documents, not photocopies. And therefore, um, people who might suffer from homelessness or people who move around a lot they, they might get halfway through the process. They lose their documents. They have to start all over. And so we're coming up with a clinic to um, get those numbers up and help people who are eligible for these pardons to uh, fill out their applications and be successful at their, uh, their pardon application and help them reintegrate into society, help them restore their sense of personal dignity. Um, yeah, so that's we hope to launch this clinic sometime next year we will be looking for volunteers next year um we're always looking for volunteers so if anybody is interested uh you can check out cannabis amnesty site cannabisamnesty.ca i can be reached at pardons at cannabisamnesty.ca or you can email volunteers at cannabisamnesty.ca and we would love to have your help um it's very meaningful work and you'll really help a lot of people through this process so I do invite you to come join us on our mission
0: thank you for listening to the law garage podcast if you're new to the podcast please check out season one and follow us on twitter and instagram at the law garage our production crew includes executive producer Jason Cooper and associate producers Christina Zdow and Remy Sansonwal. The Law Garage is a J Mike podcast production.